This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me speaking to you from New York City at Vox Media Headquarters. It's a beautiful day here. This is a two-part podcast. We have two cool guests. One is a quick chat I had with Dylan Byers from NBC, who is in Sun Valley, Idaho, at the annual Billionaire Summer Camp known as Sun Valley. Uh, Dylan is watching and maybe listening to the tech and media moguls get together. We talked about why he does that, um, what actually happens there, and what a reporter is supposed to do in the absence of real news. It's a very meta conversation and a quick one. Uh, And then there's a conversation with Erin Lee Carr, great documentarian. She's also written a cool memoir. Um, She's got multiple documentaries on HBO, um, which you can see right now. We talked all about that and sort of growing up in the shadow of her father, the late, great David Carr. So here now is Dylan Byers. Live on tape, but live right now as you're listening to this, we have Dylan Byers from NBC live calling in from Sun Valley, Idaho. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be on the show. You're on Mogul Watch. (laughs) <laughs> on Mogul Watch. What, I, Although, you know, what's funny about what's funny about Mogul Watch is that the agenda here, so I got my hands on a copy of the agenda here, and all of the events that these guys go to are like, start at these ungodly hours in the morning. Like the first event they go to is at something like 7 a.m. Yeah, if you're going to rule the world, you got you got to get up early, right? I mean, uh, Bob Iger gets up at like four in the morning to, to work out and then, then crush the, the little people. Um, explain to people who may not know what Sun Valley is and, and why media and tech moguls are there, what Sun Valley is and why media and tech moguls are there. Sure. So I, the best way to characterize Sun Valley is that it's probably, you know, I, there, there is a conference circuit which I think both you and I are very familiar with. Yes. In, 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 there's a way to sort of constantly travel from place to place, you know, the, the South by Southwest, CES, uh, Aspen, Cannes, whatever. This is the one place where all of these media and tech executives um, sort of come together in relative privacy and are, are, are able to sort of relatively enjoy themselves in the company of only each other and then a handful of reporters, uh, myself included, who sort of uh, uh, stand around on the edges with the hopes of, of snagging a few conversations or interviews on the side. But, I, you know, as far as their very busy schedules go, I think this is actually an opportunity for them to get together to dress very informally uh, in T-shirts and polo shirts and vests and bring the kids, bring, bring the family uh, and actually have an opportunity to sort of just enjoy themselves uh, see and be seen and, and engage in what, you know, sounds to me like some actually pretty thought-provoking panels about uh, both the future of media and technology and then also sort of larger issues ranging from, you know, neuroscience to climate change to to everything like that. So it's it's like your standard conference in which there's panels in which people talk about big weighty topics and then there's networking. The difference is the networking is happening among billionaire executives. That's right. And I, I think that level of intimacy and privacy for them creates a sort of different atmosphere in which they are able to let their guard down a little more than then the hope for those those handful of reporters that come here uh, and wait in the cafe for them to walk uh, between their various venues is that by by them letting their guard down they will also then let their guard down with you and that that can be successful at times or not successful, depending, I think, on the, on the mood of the attendees. Right. So the myth, the myth of Sun Valley, with some truth to it, is that these big deals sometimes get hatched here because the executives are wearing their athleisure and they get together and maybe there's some drinks and they talk about buying, buying each other. Um, so I get, I get why that would be an important deal or why that would be an important thing. If you're the press, though, and it's important for us to explain sort of what the press is 
interaction is here. You're not going to see Bob Iger and Tim Cook get together and actually hash out a deal. They're not going to do it in front of you. So the hope is that maybe they'll tell you about the deal once they've done it. That's probably not going to happen. What, what, are you, what are you hoping to see while you're there? Well, right. So there's, there is this weird thing where there, there's a handful of media, you know, Andrew Ross Sorkin, Gail King, who are on the inside sort of conducting some of these panels, but everything for them is off the record. And they're not allowed to know whatever they know. And so, they, the so they can the see amazing things, but they can't tell you about it, until, at least not until it's But they can report it, right. and then they're the folks on the outside who don't get to see all of these amazing things, uh, but can report whatever they glean from the inside. I would say, look, I think there's a, there's a fair debate to be had about the value of coming to a conference you can't actually attend. And certainly there are the reporters who were here last year who did not make the return trip. You know, my feeling on this, again, is that there actually is a lot more. I think if you have, uh, uh, you know, pre-existing relationships with some of these folks, obviously you have sources inside the building. There is a chance these folks do come out. I mean, these folks do not like to be tethered exclusively to the lodge. They do come out. They do like to engage with reporters. Paint a picture how this works. In my mind, I've never been. In my mind, you guys are sort of roped off, and then every year I keep hearing you get pushed farther and farther back from where the actual event is, <laughs> and you sort of have just like a like a rope line at a at a political event. Have to sort of yell questions and hope that Tim Cook or Barry Diller, probably definitely Barry Diller, comes by and grants you a brief interview. Is that am I? Does that, that the gist of it? Not exactly. So, so that's half of it. And, and that creates this terribly awkward situation where you have a handful of reporters and, and, and camera folks standing outside the entryway shouting questions at folks who walk in. Most of the people will not give you more than a line about the weather. Uh-huh. Uh, Sherry Redstone will tell you it's a beautiful day. That, that's not terribly newsworthy. Uh-huh. Uh, on the other hand, you have folks like, like David Zaslav who, who have a sort of you know, fly to microphones uh, like a moth to a flame. He won't necessarily tell you anything of value either. I think the, I think where the value comes is being on the grounds for those moments when the when when folks do sort of walk out to the cafe, walk out to the restaurants, walk out just on the grounds, and then you have a chance to to have a conversation with them. Now, again, and I would say this is true at a conference or or not at a conference. Very often, the, the, there's a uh, indirect correlation between the value of what someone has to tell you and how uh, how on the record it is or off the record it is. Uh, but again, you know, it's there is a sense, I think, from the reporter's perspective of shooting fish in a barrel, which is that all of the folks that you and I cover, all of the folks who run these tech companies and these media companies are in the same place at the same time. And so if, if you are in the business of, of that sort of tech and media journalism, and you recognize that a part of the business, you know, is establishing relationships and having off-the-record conversations, background conversations, uh, then there's a lot of value to it. And then I would also say for my colleagues on the television side, Julia Borstein at CNBC, the folks at Bloomberg, et cetera, uh, you, do, you do have those folks who are a little bit more willing to go on camera and maybe do an interview. Those tend to be more along the lines, again, of like the David Zaslavs or the retired uh, uh, CEOs who have nothing to lose. You're by saying going on some the people like going on TV a lot, um, and then and then I think most people are if they're aware of Sun Valley, they they know it's the place where the tech moguls and media moguls come out and they wear these sort of studiously informal uh, uh, outfits. Uh, their leisure wear, a lot of vests. What's uh, if you're going to do some fashion critique? Who has the most interesting casual wear you've seen so far? 
You know, that's a really good question. I would say, uh, I mean, Brian Grazer is always sort of, you know, interesting, if only because he goes beyond the most boring of, uh, uh, you know, T-shirt and vest. I mean, the great sartorial story of Sun Valley every year is actually the vest itself, which Allen and Company who puts this festival on and handles many of the big mergers and acquisitions in media and tech. Obviously, the, the, the swag bags on the inside of this conference are immense, but for some reason, people take great pride in sort of being given this vest. I think it confers a sense of, of significance on you if you get invited uh, to participate in this thing. I think certainly there are a lot of folks uh, in the world of media and tech, uh, C-suites, uh, who sort of, you know, count on being invited to this thing, I think would, would take great offense if they were not invited. Yeah, to I texted, I texted so, someone you know, who I assumed was going to be there and said, are you going? And said, no, wasn't invited. Yeah, and what's really fun, too, is you get, you, you get these folks who tell you, well, I, I'm not going this year because I'm going, you know, I, got, I, I have somewhere else to be or I'm going on a trip with the family. If you get invited to Sun Valley, you go. You just do. And I, I mean, there, there might be an exception to the rule here and there. But by and large, this is the conference where if you do run one of these companies or you are engaged in the game of media tech engagement, you want to be here. And I think that's why, again, just to, to sort of bring it full circle to the sort of value of this conference, it is one of those rare things where you do have everyone in the same place. At a, at a minimum, you want to be seen. I know uh, Jeff Katzenberg last year uh, made a point of he was trying to put together his deals for Quibi and and made a point of being seen by everyone else in yes. the tech world. Whether or not he was actually doing the deals, he wanted to be seen working on those some, deals. Some people would some people would posit that Jeffrey Katzenberg started Quibi in order to just stay in the game of going <laughs> to Sun Valley. I, I don't think I think I don't think that's quite fair. But uh, yeah, you definitely want to see him be seen. And I would say. There's some very notable absences uh, this year in the wake of Me Too. People who used to really stand out at this conference included Les Moonbez, included uh, Bob Kraft of the New England Patriots, included even Kevin Sujahara. Obviously, those people uh, are, are not here this year, and I think that's that's somewhat significant uh, a sign of the shift that's taken place after after all. You, of you sound samples. like someone who's composing his think piece that he's got to file later today in the absence of. of okay, well, so now, so this is the greatest challenge about being a reporter here. If you go to Sun Valley, there's this sort of feeling that somehow you should have something. You know, there should be something to say. You every can't just send day. me photos and of dudes really and <laughs> Yeah, right. And every well, so I, I mean, at a certain point, that is that uh, on a day like day one, when everyone is, is literally just arriving and going to dinner, that might be the most value you have. But it is very fun to watch reporters try and squeeze what little juice they can out of a conference that they can't even attend. Dylan, go squeeze that juice. Everyone should be reading your email if they listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, it's the Buyer's Report. Uh, you can get it for, for the low cost of $0, correct? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're free. Yeah. It's in my inbox every day. I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you, Dylan. <laughs> Have fun. Good luck. Thank you, Peter. Bye-bye. Pleasure. Cheers. That was a cool conversation with Dylan. Um, I'm being told by my excellent producer, Golda, that I got the name of his newsletter wrong. It's Buyer's Market. Search for Dylan Buyers on the internet. You'll find a link to his email, which is really very good. I kind of kick myself for not creating it myself. So that is the best compliment I can pay Dylan. Okay. Here is Erin Lee Carr. I could never do what she does, and let's talk about what she does. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. I'm not going to do your full bio. I'm just going to do your 2019 bio. Please be sure to mention that I was previously fired from Vox. Were you actually fired? We can. Who should we take that up with? <laughs> fired from Vox. 
in a previous life. Proudly. Worked advice. This is this year's this year's resume. Memoir about you and your father, the late great David Carr. HBO documentary on the USA gymnastics scandal, and another HBO documentary called "I Love You Now Die." What a great title! And it's a great documentary. I just watched it. It's about. Uh, you tell us what it's about. The movie is about the infamous texting murder scandal. Michelle Carter, the young woman who supposedly texted her boyfriend to kill himself. And I had the only camera inside the courtroom. I was anointed the pool camera. So it's a uh, oh. tight, beautiful, crazy look into something that devastated many. It's on HBO now. If you are hearing this podcast, you can watch it. You need to pay HBO or get a free subscription or however one watches HBO. Maybe you know someone with a password. You should watch it. It's a rough watch, though. I got to say, it's intense. I was telling Aaron <laughs> I meant this as a compliment. I don't know that I would have finished it if it wasn't my job to watch it. It's, it's a really great and difficult couple hours and change. Why did you decide to make a really difficult documentary about a teenager who killed himself, maybe at the provocation of another teenager? So I have a trilogy at HBO. My first film, Thought Crimes, was about fantasy and the internet. Mommy Didn't Dare Us about Gypsy Rose Blanchard was about um, can you get someone else on the internet to kill your mother because she's abusing you? And then there is... This film, I Love You Now Die, which is about Michelle Carter, but as I began to investigate it, I I cared more and more about Michelle Carter, but I learned so much more about Conrad Roy. I mean, we tend to sort of lose track of the victims in the story, especially if they're deceased. And so this film is a it's sort of a testament to boyhood and girlhood. Yeah, it's it's a you are telling both stories and there's sort of multiple stories within each story and it's super layered. You said this was an infamous case and I had a vague memory of sort of hearing about this, but it, there's a bunch of cases about kids doing bad things to each other and sometimes the internet is blamed. I remember there was a MySpace suicide. I feel like there's a steady rash of these. What what about this story? struck you when it happened? I mean, you had to go ahead and make... This wasn't something where you retroactively decided you were interested. You were following the case from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, I just remember some of Michelle Carter's texts were released, and she'd said things like, it's now or never. Are you going to do it? And for somebody who likes thinking about women, especially complicated women, it was just like, there's something here. No one gets—nobody likes writing things like that. So I knew that there had to be some mental health issues on both sides. So I immediately reached out to her attorneys, to the family, like— you know, it took a really, really long time to make this. You know, we're in 2019. I started making it in 2015. And so people, you know, say you, you're having quite a year. And it's like, you know, these things take forever and are not taken lately. Yeah, you didn't just wake up in January and make this documentary. Absolutely not. Um, I think at one point with uh, the, cops, the cops talk about downloading Michelle Carter's phone. And there's 60, 60,000 documents or 60,000 texts to go through. I think they said items, items of evidence. Like she just, her phone was jam-packed with crazy things. I mean, I'm pretty sure I read about 10,000 of her text but, messages. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask because you, you you tell the story. I mean, you, you talk to most of the players, but a lot of this is just told in the texts of the kids. They appear on screen. You, you have to watch this one. You can't, you, can't, you can't listen to it. Just to get through those texts alone would take a significant chunk of time. Is this a story that's about the internet and technology, or is this a story about screwed up kids in difficult places and technology as a character in it or, or as part of it? I think it's both. 
I think it's really difficult to talk about young manhood without talking about technology or what it means to be a teenager. It's so baked into how people relate to each other. And so I found that, you know, it was impossible to distinguish the Michelle from her sort of digital self. Her digital self was who she really thought she was. Yeah, I mean, these people are theoretically dating, or they call themselves boyfriend and girlfriend, but I think they've met five times in real life. Yeah, one of the misconceptions of the case is that it was a girlfriend who supposedly told her boyfriend to kill himself. As you said, they met in life five times. I don't think they kissed. I'm not sure. I definitely don't think they hooked up. Uh Um, And so it was just really strange. Like, there's a point in the movie where she asks him, can I call, is it okay if I say that I was your girlfriend? Because he's talking about killing himself. And he just, I think he like sort of pauses and even the definition of the relationship, even though there were, it was really romantic at times, like it wouldn't be classified as a boyfriend-girlfriend. Yeah, and then and then so you've got this, you're telling a story through text and it's a text relationship. And then he has these really affecting um, scenes where he's filming himself, presumably talking into his laptop. Um, I don't know if you explained it. Was that was was he publishing that stuff or was he recording it for himself? But it's 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 familiar to anyone who spent any time looking at YouTube, right? It's a kid looking into the camera and talking about himself. Yeah, we live in a post "It Gets Better," the Dan Savage campaign about sort of talking into camera about your experience. I recently had Lynn Roy, Conrad Roy's mother, to HBO, and I asked about that video. What you know? What was that? It was evidence in the trial. And she said, you know, we opened his computer and that was in the trash folder. He never published it. So that wasn't a YouTube clip. That was just himself It was something that he probably wanted to publish on YouTube and help other people, but he could not do it. It's really affecting. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing the best job promoting this. You should watch it. But you should steal yourself a little bit. I mean, you you know, and, and this is the most not- challenging art makes us confront our own sort of uh, crisis of faith, and I, I hope that this film does that. But you know, it, it's also about looking at warning signs differently. Yeah, I got two kids, so I, the, the warning signs are just watching this movie are just jumping out at me. And again, you you st- the movie starts off, and you, you obviously know if you're watching it, you know the kid died, you know they had a relationship, you, you sort of know the basics of the case, and then you spend two hours sort of peeling back onions and saying, well, you didn't know this, and you need to consider this, and you don't really reach a conclusion at the end, which is yeah, great. That's kind of my style as a filmmaker. I grew up with the Andrew Jarecki, Liz Garbus, where they present evidence, and you're left for years wondering what happened, talking specifically about capturing the Freedmans or what's wrong with Aunt Diane, two films that are incredibly important to me and why I'm a filmmaker. And so, you know, a lot of interviewers are like, you know, is she guilty? Is she innocent? I was like, I just gave you 140 minutes to decipher. I'm not going to give you a gimme. Like, you know, and I, I'm trained under my great uh, father, David Carr, journalist at the Times and other places. And, you know, there's there's a lot of his advice that rings true in this film. As you were making this, I think concurrently there was sort of increased scrutiny about Twitter and Facebook and bullying and, and worse. Um, and I think for a lot of people that, that scrutiny feels long overdue. I think for a lot of people, they say, you know, who cares if someone called someone a nasty name? On the internet, um, this one and this again, this is texting between two people, but it seemed to have echoes of that. Did you pick up on that as you were making this? Yeah, like 
people would tweet things about her as she was un- undergoing her legal case, saying the C word and that she needs to ride the lightning. Yeah. Like, that's where I really picked up this sort of vitriolic hatred towards this person who's obviously mental, mentally struggling. That's not to say that her behavior was um, okay. And that would have existed in any time. There's been celebrity yeah. murder trials going back as long as we've had mass media. But the right. idea that you can comment on them, or, or let alone, I mean— by anyone, let alone a, a someone a, someone accused of murder. To her, to people, she was an avatar of female evil. Uh, there wasn't a greater understanding of why she did the things that she did. I mean, I watched all of the reporting come out after the trial, and I sat there every day, and everybody just said the same things about—and I'm not calling anybody out specifically, but— you know, spe- you know, talking about that she told Conrad Roy to get back in the truck. Yeah. That's where he died— she did not do that. Well, we that don't know. Very, we don't know, right? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, they like for we don't have minutes. evidence. And she, of that. well, she said she did. I think that's one of the bits of confusion. She right? texted her friend Sam Boardman that I told him to get back in, and but is I, I studied the text messages. Yeah. She was consistently lying about things, yeah, making she's the things. Definition grander. of an unreliable narrator. <laughs> exactly. Try oh. making that movie. <laughs> well, you did. You Horrible. did make that movie. Do you have an impulse to take, like, a bubble bath for your next movie to do something about— pop- and there's a Netflix series about just dogs. You could do that. Yeah, I'm working on a Netflix show. I tend to—my dad told me, like, get a beat, yeah. get really good at it, and then people will know you for it. And so that's obviously what I've been doing. So you want this to be your calling card. I want to do complicated crime. Um, that's, I mean, you know, at the heart of gold, the gymnastics story is complicated crime, but it, it's sort of different. It's societal. It's very survivor-focused, so it's really good to challenge yourself and try different things. But I don't know. I still really like doing these things. There's a variety review, and it's it's very positive, right? It, it calls you a, a young documentarian of unusual achievement. So that's good. Um, but throughout the documentary, it's saying, this is very good, and it's better than a lot of the other stuff you've seen. Or you've seen a lot of stuff like this, but this is still very good. And it's almost saying, look, look we've seen a lot of this stuff. But go ahead and watch this anyway. Do you feel like you're, there's a lot of people doing what you're doing or versions of what you're doing? Absolutely. I mean, what I love about true crime is there is an audience. When we put the trailer on Twitter— it's going to go somewhere. People are going to care about it. And yes, people see it as the lowbrow version of entertainment. It doesn't need to be. And like when you're making things like these for these networks, they're not going to accept lowbrow, especially with, with my kind of work. So with me, it, it pushes me and challenges me to redefine the genre of true crime and bring out the human in it. So true crime is an old genre. It is going through a boomlet now, both on TV, streaming, Audio, serial, huge. podcast. Um, what do you think makes it work right now in this time? It's an escape from politics, and it has the stakes built in. It's good, it's evil, it's death, it's life. It's easy for our brains to to think about, to take in. And women are facing high-level threats of violence. We're seeing a lot of stuff like that. So for me, it's always been— uh, women sort of practicing if this were to ever happen to them, what would what would they do? Anecdotally, this stuff skews more. The audience is, is more women. Right. And you find that to be true. Yes. And then and then you've mentioned multiple times you think this is there's a, a sort of feminist component to this story. 
I do. Which I mean, is what? it's just so you, a lot of the reporting centered around Michelle Carter's eyebrows and that she looked like Kara and she was devious and we placed all of our sort of expectations on what she was doing. I have rarely seen so much coverage of somebody's face and that she was like this white privileged girl that did this, like really made people mad. And yeah. so a, a large part of my doc is sort of looking at that that archetype, that ice queen stereotype and sort of ripping it apart and showing Michelle Carter to be a vulnerable, lonely, mentally uh not ill, but, like, she's dealing with mental health issues. Yeah. Like, she was in a psychiatric facility months prior to Conrad's death. That's never brought up. It's nice because you don't have a narrator come out and say, while, while she's, you know, you don't have a narrator come out and say what you just said. You do at one point, uh, who's the, the, the guy? Jesse Barron. Jesse Barron. He, when he describes her, he initially describes the way she looked. He Heartless said, bitch. Well, yes, but he also describes her jacket, that she's got a spray tan or a tanning bed tan or whatever it is. And it's very specific. She has a specific look, and you left that in for a reason, which is? It kind of set the stage. What I do in the documentary is I kind of share with you what we thought the story was, and then I, like, hack that story up. Yeah. And that—Jesse was a big part of that— you know, I met him, and, you know, I was like, okay, this is going to be an hour or whatever. Uh, it was four hours long. He was saying the things that I thought and nobody had said out loud before. And all three of the films I've made for HBO includes um, include a journalist, and they are narrators of a sort. And a couple of reviews that I let that guy take over my movie. Yeah. Like, come on. I was very careful about what I put in what I didn't put in. You know, he just—he had high-level thinking about the case. And I think more documentaries should work with journalists— as part of the films, did you have a desire to insert yourself into the movie? A lot of a lot of the documentaries that are out today um, insert insert the documentarian either as a narrator or they come on screen. As someone who just wrote a memoir, no, <laughs> I have been completely tired of hearing myself talk. Good God, yeah, I'm not I'm not a VO gal. You'll be hard pressed. I mean, maybe I might do it in the future to see if I can do it right. But you know, I like listening to Alex Gibney in his movies. I, I don't I don't I just don't know if it's a fit because my whole thing is you don't know what I'm thinking. Yeah. What if I tell you what I'm thinking? It kind of ruins the game. Yeah. I'm gonna think about that for a second. We're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna hear from somebody else, not Aaron Lee Carr. We'll be right back. We're back here with Aaron Lee Carr, who is not making a dog show for Netflix, although I'm, I'm gonna try to persuade her by the end of this. Um can we talk about how you got into movies and documentaries and, and weird, creepy stuff? You went to Wisconsin. State school, woohoo! Was the plan I was gonna you were gonna make movies? So I really wanted to be a film critic, and I remember I would love watching movies, I love talking about them, and uh, I talked about it with my dad, and he said, you know, there's about six of those jobs, and the writing needs to be stellar. I don't see that as a good fit for you. Whoa! Was this in college, after college? It was in college. And he just was like straight off the dome, really brisk, brutal. Don't do this. Don't do that. Did he have any advice about steering clear of media altogether? He loved being in media. He loved yeah. writing about it. He loved being in it. I think he definitely wanted me to work in the Venn diagram of media. He thought it would be a, like a probably a hard spot if I was a journalist. Didn't Wasn't sure about me being a publicist. He was like, I don't think that's a good fit for you either. Uh, so I think that— Hard spot being a journalist because journalism's harder because your dad is David Carr. Both. Yeah. Yeah. And so when 
Vice was on the scene when I graduated in 2010. They were making short-form video content, and therein lie was the Venn diagram of uh, journalism, of documentary, of creative thought, of thinking outside the box. And so I applied, and I was an unpaid intern, then a paid intern, then an AP, and within a year, I think a year and a half, I, I demanded they promote me. <laughs> Like, very few other women there. I just, I mean, maybe that they, they did in closed doors and it didn't happen. But I was made a producer and very quickly, and, like, I just wanted to make my own stuff. Vice was a famously, uh, is debauched the right word? Loose, uh, boys club. Um, uh, the Times eventually wrote about it. Uh, people were sort of disappointed that they only sort of wrote what they wrote. Um, did you get a sense of, of, of wild and crazy times there? I definitely participated yeah. in the wild and crazy times there. I was uh, I was introduced to cocaine, which I loved personally. Uh, I no longer do it. Uh, you know, it just was like kind of like party, party, do your work. And the people that did best there were able to party and do their work. Simultaneously or they would party and then go do the work and then party more? Do the work, then party, yeah. but get up the next day and you could you could hang. Yeah. That being said, I mean, I feel comfortable. I would go into meetings, and there are very few women there. You know, I worked for Motherboard, the technology vertical. It was all dudes, great dudes, smart dudes, dudes that I learned from, but not a lot of people that, that were females. So it's just, it. I had a great time. I made some good films, but I, I didn't see me as a, a big person on the upolator. And there was this really uncomfortable moment where I had this thing called Click Print Gun that had um, millions of views. And Shane Smith, the then uh, sort of the founder and CEO, brought me up on stage. And he said, you know, who knew this little girl could do it? Yeah, it's very Shane Smith kind of thing. And I was just like, what the? Like, I don't—am I a little girl? No, I'm a producer who got this and got this for you. You're welcome. And brought it back with my teeth. Like— what are you talking about? And he like put his arm around me and I just, I don't know, it really creeped me out. Your dad famously went to Vice. This is part of this page one documentary and sort of dressed down the the Vice guys. They were bragging about the, the work they were doing in Africa. You can go look up the clip. And then I, I think your dad became sort of friendly with, with Shane. And was that happened concurrently while you were there? Was that Was that an issue for you? No, I mean, my dad loved when people could step up to him if he yelled at them. And Shane didn't cower, uh, continued to talk with him. So they had sort of this mutual affinity for each other that I thought was great. I love when people yell at each other and they can still be friends after. Um, you know, there's questions. Can you be friends with someone you cover? Yeah. There's issues there. Um, he did not write about them when I worked for them. Uh, he basically, they knew by Vice hiring me that he wouldn't be able to write. So it was kind of a loss for them, I think, in agreeing to hire me. Okay, so that was on that was on their radar. You knew, they knew, everyone right. knew. And so, I, I hated walking into a room and I would hear, "This is David Carr's daughter." What a drag! But I then mean, you wrote a memoir about it. But then I was proud of it. <laughs> um, Therein so, lies the rub. <laughs> yeah. So you do you do Vice for a couple years, and at what point do you realize that this is a thing that I could do for a living? I could make documentary films and get paid and pay my rent. So from 2010 to 2013, I worked at Vice. Vox poached me offered me uh, like a living human being, New York salary. Uh, Yay, and I, Fox. I immediately was like, you guys, I'm leaving. I'm getting paid. And they were like, yeah, good luck. No one cares. And I came here and I think I lasted four months. Yeah, I wasn't a Should good we, do we want to Do we want to settle any scores? <laughs> I think everyone there is probably gone at this point. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just like I had a bit of a booze problem and they had a bit of, um, you know, just having videos about iPhones problem. Yeah. And it was incredibly boring to go from making content about things I cared about to listening to people who had no idea what they were doing. And I didn't. I mean, I guess I'm getting very spicy. Yeah, I like it. Um, You know, I think it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, getting fired. And I'm very open. I talk about it because it was so deeply shameful. And I was humiliated. And I think, you know, somebody advice before I left told me, you are going to fail and I'm going to laugh at you. And four months later, it transpired. I had failed and I was going to not going to be able to get another job. Media is hard. Where do you go to after you have a four-month thing on your resume? I was terrified. And being, you know, somebody's kid is not going to solve your four-month firing problem. And so I kind of had to do a redirect and think, what is something that I, what is something else that I can do? And I remember I thought up an idea, and through the help of Andrew, I was in a room with Sheila Nevins, the head of HBO Doc, and I pitched her ideas. It's a pretty good room to get in. And this is this is also happening while Docs are sort of, I think, it, this is at the same time they are sort of taking off, right? People are realizing there's a big audience for them on HBO, and I, I think Netflix is probably not making them yet, but quickly, pretty, pretty soon after that, there's a boomlet for documentaries. Yeah. And it seems like that's worked out for you. Yeah, and I, I think that no one at HBO hands you a documentary film at 25. You do what's called a development deal. You have to prove that you can get access. I was visiting prisons. I was writing. I was filming. I lived on, it was like four Gs for six months. And again, being David Carr's daughter is not going to get your movie made. No. they don't. I mean, Sheila Nevins doesn't care. She just recently said in an interview that she was not impressed by me. <laughs> it was so spicy and great um, in that sort of initial meeting. But I, you know, I, I babysat, I, I did things to earn money, and I made sure that this development deal was going to go somewhere and ended up being my first feature for HBO. And when, and when did that break through? When did that happen? It was 2015 that it premiered at Tribeca Film Festival. So here we are now. You're how many docs in? Five. You're going fast. Um, mostly HBO, one Netflix. Do you care where they show? I mean, obviously, you, you're, you're a big advocate of HBO since that's why we're here today. Um, but do you care where someone sees it, if they see it on a TV, if they see it on a phone, if they see it on a laptop or an iPad? I don't want anyone watching my stuff on a phone. I'm sorry, I watched it on my phone. You did? I watched Come most on, of it. Come on, Peter. I w- well, it's, on your it's, ride home, you're like, mm. No, I was actually, I tried to airplay it. It's a really boring story to, from my phone, but it wouldn't work. So I watched it. It's great. Oh, now I'm thinking I was too spicy about Vox. I love you, Vox. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. That's why I'm here. Just an FYI. Um, so no phone. Don't do what Peter did. Um, but you don't care if it's streamed, if it's what service it's on. People are going to get it wherever they're going to get it. I love when people talk about it on Instagram or Twitter or like I just saw like the trailer went wild on Reddit and I like was deep in the comments looking at it. All I want is for people to talk about it and for it to be a part of the discussion. It's so difficult right now. It's such a crowded marketplace. Like, you you have to be the thing or you're one of a hundred things. And so it's a little difficult to get things seen. But when you're on something like HBO and they really push it, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I will say, like, I saw them come out with Chernobyl this spring. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. No one's going to watch a Chernobyl series. Wild. Crazy. Crazy. They're doing a lot of incredible things. Yeah. Um, and now you work for the phone company. Exactly. Thanks a lot. Now it's going to be Freelancer. Stream- it's going to be streaming on something called HBO Max next spring, it turns out. That's the new title. As long as they work out their search uh, 
they're ter- the app is terrible. Your advice for other filmmakers, would-be filmmakers, someone wants to do what you're doing? Please pay estimated taxes. Do not fuck the tax man. The taxman will fuck you back. It's one of the, like, as a freelancer, you, you just, you have to be really careful about money. Um, I think always write thank you cards after you have a big meeting. Show your subjects the movie, even though it makes you want to gouge your eyeballs out. You show them a completed movie and say, this yeah. is what, this is not, I don't want, you don't want the feedback. You're just saying, look, here's what's coming. Right. No editorial involvement whatsoever. When it's locked in the can, you show it prior to premiere date. And what does that get you? What does that do for you or for them? It's really about them not feeling confronted with the fact uh, that it's on HBO and people are commenting on before that they've had a chance to process it. It's really about respect, people giving you their time and you allowing them time to process it. There's a brutal scene, uh, I was thinking about this watching it, uh, where uh, Conrad Roy's father acknowledges that he beat him and you've just shown footage of uh, pictures of his face uh, from, I guess, the police report. Um, and he talks about it. He says, this is a little embarrassing and sort of tries to defend it. But I can't imagine being on, first of all, sitting on camera for that question not, and answering it, not walking away and then knowing that's going to be shown. What was the reaction when he saw that? So asking Conrad's dad why in the circumstances that led up to his son's concussion precluded him from being able to see the film before it aired. Yeah. I showed Lynn Roy, his mother, that did not have a history of violence with her son. What do you mean it precluded? He just— I didn't, didn't show it to him. I okay. didn't. I didn't—you know, I, I feel like I owed a debt of gratitude to his mother. But I did not do the same thing for his father. His father didn't respond to my email when I, we, when I tried reaching out to him. I mean, I'm assuming that by the time you got to the Roys and everyone involved, a lot of them had been exposed to media. A lot of them had thought about whether or not they want to participate in a thing like this. They might have had thoughts about whether or not they want to get paid. Um, do you want to deal with subjects who are sort of aware of what's happening to them, aware of what your role is, that you're going to make a movie that they may not have control over or they won't have control over? Or would you rather sort of have them come to it really fresh? It's a great question. Like, for Mommy Dead and Dearest, no one was trying to ask them questions. I was just like, I was this girl, and it was like the grandparents talking about Dee Dee's ashes in the toilet, and like, I don't know. There's so much—it was so much easier because there was a bit of humor, and like, Mm -hmm. with the Conrad Roy family, they were so harangued by the media and so sought after that— They're just a phalanx of of cameras at them, right? It's a national story. I mean, they were treated like celebrities, like chased after, contacted. I really felt like a vulture being at that courthouse and dragging all my camera kit and sweating and just being like, you know, I can—I'm going to make a long-form documentary. And they're like, we don't care. Our kid's dead. Like— you know, I think that they, they ended up participating, but I think it was through a ton of careful contemplation because you look at my trajectory as a filmmaker, I'm not going to vilify Michelle Carter 10 out of 10. Like, I'm going to look at what happened there. And they're, you know, they know that sort of thing. Uh, so, I, you know, it was it was painful for them to have a stranger come into their house and talk about their kid. Yeah. And I'm just thinking why— I- why, especially after they had a little time to sort of contemplate if they want to do this. They've already gone through this multiple times. They've been in national TV for an extended period. Now you're coming back to them and saying, I'd like to do more of this. Is there something they want to set straight? 
Is there, it's HBO, and that's just interesting to them? They haven't done that they before? They don't care about that. It really was that Michelle Carter as a person took over all of the coverage, and it became all about her and less about him. And so I looked at them in the eyes and said, I will make this about your son. I care about your son. I care about what happened to him. This is a goal here, and I'm being honest with you. How did you get to be the pool photographer? I was wondering. I, just, I was assuming that was public domain footage, and then you had it. And a couple times I thought, wait, the camera works really specific here. Yeah, the, when you have a news pool camera, they're going to shoot it completely differently. Yeah. They're going to all be, like, um, tights. And what I needed is the entire stage. So, like, you felt like a jury member, so we shot a lot of wides. The news media hated that. I was known as, like, the HBO like, I don't know. Was, I had technical difficulties. I was always dripping in sweat. It was not a good look. I begged the Massachusetts court system for us to be the cool pool camera, explaining that it needed to be shot differently, and they allowed to let us do it. I don't know if they'll be letting me back. I don't know. You made a great movie. Um, I want to take one more quick break. Again, go see this movie. It's streaming. You probably already paid for HBO or you have a subscription, so or you have your mother's subscription, so go watch it. Be right back with Aaron Lee Carr. Back here with Aaron Lee Carr. We've talked about your movie. I do want to talk about your book. We've referenced your dad several times. And you're obviously comfortable talking about him. It's one thing to talk about him. It's another thing to write a book about your relationship with him. Um, and you've talked about sort of why you've done that. But I'm still sort of thinking about the trajectory that gets you thinking, I want to talk about my dad versus I want to write a book about my relationship with my father. Yeah. When he died, I looked at one of his emails, and it was one of the only things that sort of gave me solace in that moment. And I began to look through all of my emails and knew how incredibly beautiful they were. And I thought, you know, this isn't a documentary. If I stare at him for a year straight, I will I will go insane. Uh, this isn't an article. I don't want to give anybody access to that, to this sort of intimacy through just an article. It's a book. Can I do it? And I wrote a proposal. The proposal was okay. Uh, I knew I could do better. And basically, they I think Random House wanted to give me 12 months, and I asked for 18, knowing that it's, it was just, it took five drafts. Like, it's, writing is a craft. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I know how to, you know, I know how to create a story, but it's not, it's not easy. Like, it just, it took draft after draft after draft to get it there and to cut it down and make it feel intimate. I was looking at a Times thing. Uh, we talked about the fact that you sort of, not storyboarding, what's the word you used? So you basically used the same method you would use to make a movie to plot this out with note cards. Yeah, I was having a hard time figuring out what would be interesting to a reader. And it was like, just do what I do in docs and write the scenes. And what, is there a trajectory? Is there, you know, inciting incident? What's act one? At What's act two? What's act three? But it was my life and my father's life. And like, I, I read recently that a rule of good writing is you don't talk about the wake. You don't talk about the funeral. You sort of let that sort of hang there. And I ignored a lot of these rules and just wrote about what felt important to his life and to my own. Your father had a huge stage and he was a huge character and, um, a lot of people, and in addition to the fact that he just had a ton of reach because he was writing a media column for the Times, he just had relationships with hundreds and hundreds of people who all felt intimately connected to him. I was one of them. Um, after he died, we all went to Twitter, basically, or, or other online outlets and talked about our relationship with David Carr. Um, I'm wondering, sort of knowing that 
it's not just that your dad was a famous person. It's that your dad was connected to so many people who all had their David Carr stories. If that weighed on you as you were writing your David Carr story, which is kind of the definitive David Carr story. Yeah, I, I sometimes thought that sometimes people would say, like, I miss David Carr to get internet points. Yeah. Like, I know who my dad knew and who he did not know. Uh, I have his Twitter account. I know what the score is. So it's always been a little nerve-wracking to, like, have a little, have resentment in that front. But By the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm interrupting you. I want to write that all the time. <laughs> I'm constantly thinking, oh, my God, what would David write about this? Yeah. The last couple of years, Roger Ailes gets pushed out. Trump gets elected. Bill O'Reilly gets pushed out. Come on. Um, now that I've interrupted you. But exactly as you just said— when people bring him up, and we're four years away from him dying in February 2015, I, I I like it. I love when people talk about him. I love that he's still a thing. I remember I asked Brian Stelter, are people going to forget about my dad? He's so ever-present in my thought process in my life. And I just—it makes me frantic to think that people would forget him. And, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet. What would his criticism of your book be? Oh, God. Because this is one of the great things about David. He would build you up, but he would definitely bring you down multiple pegs. Great question. Uh, so he would say the alcohol stuff is pretty JV. You know, you're, you're, you're working in a recovery memoir where so many insane things are revealed. Is there anything else there? Uh, he would want— He wrote his own Yeah, he wrote memoir. The Night of the Gun, which is horrifying and amazing. Uh, truly recommend, even though I'm totally biased and related to him. What, what else would he—I He, I mean, I don't know. I think he would love the book, honestly. I know that that's ridiculous to say, but it's his writing. He, It's his emails. It's his advice, that great Berkeley speech, you know, his TEDx stuff, like the advice at the back of the book. Like my dad, great narcissist, would love a book yeah. about him. Yeah, yeah, he would. He'd be very proud of you and your work as well. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thanks for talking. Um, it was weird that we had to do a podcast of this conversation, but I'm glad we did it. Yeah, he wouldn't get coffee with me, you guys. He said, I'm not interested. Come on my podcast. <laughs> Go watch Aaron Carr's movies. Go read her book. Uh, and come back and listen to Recode Media again in a week. Thanks to our sponsors. Also, thanks to Golda Arthur, who produces Recode Media, and flagged this for me. She said, you should have Aaron Lee Carr on. Golda, you were correct. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. Also great. Joel Robbie, also great, is our editor. You're great because you're listening to this and you're going to tell someone else you like listening to it as well on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this fine podcast. We'll see you soon.